Hello, friends and comp. I gotta get back. All right. <laughs> Hello, friends and comrades. Yeah, fuck our enemies. friends and enemies it's episode 68 of this machine kills i'm jathan joined by ed and producer jeremy as always where where to even begin i guess before we even get rolling with the top with 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 this week's uh, topic which you know we'll we'll be diving a bit more into the right to repair which is something that we've talked about with like when we had Corey doctor on for our double header uh like you know months ago now at this point you know we kind of talked about that and in particular, like his idea of like comcom or competitive compatibility, uh, you know, stuff like that. But we didn't really touch on like super in depth on the right to repair. And it's a topic that's like really starting to pop up now um, and really and pop off as there's been some like lobbying and counter lobbying around it. So we just kind of want to have a little discussion about it. But before we do that, I just want to give a shout out. We've been hearing so many great things. Uh, from people listening to the show, uh, telling us how how it's been helping them, like do things like organize at work, right? By like like you know organizing at their companies, at their tech jobs, by you know sharing it with with friends and family and colleagues as a way to like you know get them on board with the TMK way of thinking about things with this kind of critical techno politics. Uh, you know, fill, uh, forming bonds of solidarity and, and shared consciousness about these ideas. And we just want to say thank you. I mean, like, we fucking love to hear it. We love to hear it. And it's always a surprise and always pleasant to us uh, when we hear that, like, the show has that kind of utility to people and really speaks to people. So really want to, you know, shout all you out. Um, and thank you. Thank you for doing it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for letting us know that the show actually uh, is not only like interesting and thought provoking to you, but is useful in like actual material and social ways. Yeah, it's been re it's really, really, really good to hear this. And that's what we want to do. That's what we set out to do, right? Helping people understand where they're at, the things around them. Uh, the material limitations and and ideas that they have to play with to achieve a little bit more uh, autonomy or freedom or agency on the path to, of course, destroying every single tech vampire billionaire, right? <laughs> right, driving Allegedly. a stake, driving a stake through their heart in a in yeah. What, in what a, is in that? Very... What that uh, Scottish woman say when uh, Margaret Thatcher uh, died? It was uh, no Theresa May. She said, uh, "No, Ding Dong, the Mar witch is Mar dead." No, it was uh, if they were like, "Do you think it's sad that uh, Theresa May's dead?" And the woman was like, uh, "I'd put garlic around her neck and stick through her heart to make sure she doesn't come back." 
<laughs> and they're like, oh, that's a horrible thing to say. And she's like, too bad, too bad. <laughs> it's not Teresa May, because she's definitely still alive. Oh, so yeah, it must have been Oh, yeah. <laughs> easy All to right, get time a mix to up. I understand. Easy, easy mix up. Thatcher, May. <laughs> if Thatcher was the Iron Lady, what is uh, Teresa May, the uh, aluminum lady? Yeah, I'll, I'll, but they but said the weird way that British people say it. Aluminum. You notice I tried aluminium. Aluminium. Shout out to all of our British received pronunciation listeners. Shout out to Teresa May. The aluminum. The alun. The aluminum. Aluminium, bro. Aluminium. The aluminium. Don't let Jason fool you. He learned how to say aluminum just like I did. (laughs) Aluminium, uh, lady. There we go. (laughs) That does make me laugh that, like, when Trump, like, uh, had had a meeting with Scott Morrison, who's the Australian prime minister. So, like, you know, George Bush II uh, called John Howard, who was the Australian prime minister at the time of the um, Iraq invasion when like Bush was going around building his coalition of the willing. And Howard was one of the few people to like, you know, stand beside him because let's be real, Australia is a client state of the United States. That's right, baby. <laughs> and I think Bush was like, Bush called him like the Iron Man because he had like the the willpower and the strength to stand behind the United States and the coalition of the willing. And when Trump, <laughs> when Trump visited with Scott Morrison, he, Trump said, you know, you know, Bush, uh, uh, President Bush called called your Prime Minister Howard, the the Iron Man. I'm not going to do a Trump voice, but <laughs> called him the Iron Man. But but Scott, you're stronger than iron. You're the titanium man. Oh my fucking god! <laughs> and it's just like the most perfect fucking Trump brain in the world, right? Where he was like, I gotta one up him. I gotta yeah. one up Bush. What's better than iron? titanium <laughs> folks that tell me there's this metal is this incredibly amazing metal it's stronger than iron it even has a little iron in it right <laughs> i mean it's too bad there's not like shirt bootleggers in australia like there is in the states or i don't know maybe there is imagine someone out there selling their titanium man shirts with scott morrison's face on just this like generic like <laughs> superhero Bro, that, that has got to exist like there is such a like australia has such a like uh, uh an active right-wing culture that surely some some conservative hacks made a like tony stark scott morrison titanium man shirt this has been history corner Speaking of conservative hacks, um, let's get into the right to repair. <laughs> this episode, right, I just kind of want to like, you know, low-key, loosely riff about the right to repair a little bit. We've been doing a lot of really deep dive episodes, like kind of deeply reported, like lots of notes and stuff. But I feel like this is just a topic that I, I just kind of want to like talk about. I think it's something that a lot of people are aware of. Um, but maybe kind of like talk about the the landscape of the debates and the ideas and where we kind of sit on it, what we think the TMK line is on the right to repair. But I feel like a good way to start with that 
is to get into um, the way it's being like reframed by conservative policy wonks and think tank ghouls. Uh, in particular, like the um, the Wall Street Journal just ran last week an opinion commentary called "Right to Repair is Bad for Your Health." It's just like the perfect example of a WSJ like op-ed, right? That's just mm-hmm. like like the most like most dumbest fucking like naive like simpleton brain take on a subject, but done so in a in a way that is like solely meant to just be like bad faith and try to like mm-hmm. poison the well. And it's and it's beautiful, you know. When the Wall Street Journal opposes something, uh, reach for the gun because that means that they're trying to they're trying to get you right or reach for your wallet if that's the less legal legally actionable uh phrase that we could say um but <laughs> but uh, you know especially here right the idea that um right to repair is bad for your health because i mean the premise right and, and they do a good job of summarizing it in the deck right the premise is that right to the repair right to repair allows for non-expert unauthorized non-scheduled adjustments in the name of having a base product that can constantly be uh, modified that if you don't have a product cycle that go- expires every year or two um, and instead has people who can repair it at any time that's more dangerous because the experts who develop it um, you know might figure out all these things in their in their lab, in their R&D lab. And when the new product comes out, it has these things they figured out, incorporated into it, and it's much more advanced, right? It's like, it's like at their core, if, we, if we're going to do a good faith read of the argument, which we shouldn't, if we're going to do one, though, <laughs> then, that's the, then that's the nonsense they're pushing. But as we'll talk about here, that is not actually what ends up being coming out of their mouths or pen or whatever they use. Yeah, like this. like the, the author here, uh, Tom Giovanetti, mm. who's the president I of... I like that name. I just <laughs> finished watching a bunch of Sopranos episodes. That's good. And this guy is like if the Sopranos grew up in Texas instead of New Jersey. Yo, that's a nice... Uh... That's a nice uh, piece of advanced electronics you got. Be a shame if you could repair that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it really does kind of come down to a a Sopranos level scam. They're just trying to set themselves up as the authorized uh, repairers for. And in this article, like they're focusing on medical equipment, right? So, so the whole like scare tactic that they're trying to run. Is that like what? What if people could make unauthorized mods on PET scan, like on your PET scan machines and your MRI machines and all these like advanced like diagnostic, uh, you know, yeah, machinery and and systems. You know, isn't that scary, right? Like, like you know, what wh- what if your doctor's kid was making unauthorized mods on a PET scan machine? You know. <laughs> Yeah, what if it was just like, you know, what if every what if instead of having a you know, a console ethos for our products, we had a PC thing and anybody could mod that shit. That would be dangerous. You wouldn't like that, even though there are five thousand more mods on the PC that extend the life cycle of any game. <laughs> yeah. yeah It'd be dangerous. Know, yeah, but that that's fine for video games, but you don't want community DLC for your pet scan machine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want malware. You know, they'll yeah. put malware in your body. That's how it works, right? <laughs> <laughs> or if it was malware, it would uh, just 
Ooh. Solidarity. Yeah, suddenly Ooh. you're hating the landlord. We don't want that happening. Truly the phrase malware would absolutely uh. keep this guy up at night. Tom Giovanetti is the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. I wanted to look into this guy a little bit just to see who they are. And and like unsurprisingly, right, so Institute for Policy Innovation uh, was founded by some like Texas congressman in the 80s. Of course, um, of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. Gets a load of money from, you know, C- Coke and, all, you mm. know, all the conservative foundations is ranked uh, an eight out of eight on the conservative scale by, you know, these uh, these organizations that like rank the political spectrum of these people. Why is it out of eight? I don't know why it's out of eight. <laughs> I've never heard of anything out of eight. Four stars or five or ten. You don't, if you go over five, you do ten. You can't, you know, you can't do this shit. So a big issue for the Institute for Policy Innovation is mm-hmm. unsurprisingly intellectual property. Hmm. And this guy, Tom Giovanetti, uh, like sits on all these like World Trade Organization intellectual property boards and advisory committees and shit like that. Right. So I think that tells you like right away. Right. Because I was like, all right. I mean, one who gets to write an op ed in The Wall Street Journal, uh, like talking about right to repair is bad. And two, like, why are they doing it? Okay, you just kind of follow the money even a little bit and you Mm -hmm. see immediately Right. Okay. This, this is a lobbying effort. Like my man is in the pocket of all these companies that have an interest in preserving intellectual property. I think it's also interesting that, you know, when it comes also to intellectual property, you, I don't know, I've seen, or I've seen some stuff float around of the idea that the right ring t- uh, think tanks could be convinced of waiving IP rights, but in the reality, right, it's also like a deeply maybe like from our perspective, a deeply reactionary defense of like property and the idea that like these intangibles are just as important as like a physical material production that you need to preserve and protect and, uh, and give people access to when they're going in their marketplace based activities. Right. But at least, I don't know. I, I'm not, I'm not surprised that this school is the one defending, (laughs) you know, from a long line of IP defenders and, um, in, in, in a in a sort of slant that also would probably lead to like a bad a faith argument here about medical devices. Yeah, it's a bad like the whole medical devices, like couching it in medical devices. I mean, it's baseless. All it is is it's meant to be like a like a scaremongering framing device for this op ed, right? right? Uh-huh. To, to like raise the stakes. Um because at the end of the day, what they really care about, and they never say the quiet part loud, right? Which is about like uh, securing property rights so that these companies can secure the intellectual property rents that come with having mm-hmm. the rights and and therefore can, you know, garner all the profit that they want uh, by doing things like charging exorbitant fees to like authorize, uh, you know, uh, repairs and adjustments, controlling access to the to the software and the machinery, uh, gatekeeping it, paying, you know, charging tolls and tributes and fees and whatever for that access, um, being able to revoke it at any time. But they, they never say that, right? They never say that, even though that is the whole purpose. They always couch it. I mean, lately, they've been couching it in this language of innovation, which brings it squarely into the TMK arena. I want to read a paragraph from this essay that just like 
says it all, right? So it says, uh, really sums up the conservative free marketeer framing of this. So he says, quote, American innovation is dependent on the protection of intellectual property. It encourages innovation by discouraging theft. But there are those who are philosophically opposed to intellectual property protection, left-leaning public interest law firms and activist groups led by the U.S. Public Interest Research Group have been trying for years to undermine intellectual property protections through right-to-repair campaigns in state legislators. During this legislative session, they are pushing their anti-innovation agenda in the guise of a right to repair advanced medical devices. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, like, and then he goes on to say how it's like, uh, you know, the, 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 this has actually brought enormous benefit to consumers uh, because he says, quote, these inventions are covered by patents to encourage and reward innovation. I mean, at this point, innovation has become an empty signifier, right? Like yeah. nobody knows what the fuck it means. They think it's good and they think it's like this, uh, like an ace up the sleeve, right? If they if they can like whip out innovation and be like, you're threatening innovation, then everyone's like, oh shit, like that's the winning hand right there. Yeah, you know, and I think also innovation is interesting because it's like used, it's, you know, similar to I think what I've, I've been thinking a lot about the way Langdon Wiener points out how technology, you know, a lot of ideas are folded into the concept of technology and also a lot of ideas are folded into the concept of innovation, right? Innovation is like used broadly and at this point now, any sort of change to a structure or technique or style or system that yields like a positive benefit, whether or not it is market driven, but always the idea is that like when it's market driven, it's real innovation. And if it's centrally planned, right, if it's state-based and it's like, fake innovation that's probably inspired by market or market-driven innovation, right? But then innovation ends up referring to all sorts of things that are not really innovation. Is it innovation when a company figures out a better way to evade the law so that it can squeeze workers for more production? Is it innovation when like the lawyers are better at ignoring uh, local laws about intellectual property rights? Or is it innovation when they get bigger profits but only because they're able to take up or protect like their regime through investor, through the ISDs, uh, through uh, the investor state disputes, right? Is that innovation? Like when they're able to secure protection, right? Or monopoly rights and so on and so forth. Like it's not, it doesn't make sense when you break it down because uh, innovation is always referring to like these firms or a lot of times it's referring to firms that have like a monopoly or near monopoly. And I was under the impression that like, you know, Innovation is supposed to be a nimble, disruptive firm that is discovering a new way and as opposed to like a large lumbering firm or a large nimble firm that's preserving the status quo so that it can continue to get rent. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's no accident. I mean, we won't dive into it too much because we've, we've, we've been talking about it yeah, uh, on two other podcasts. But like... Like uh, Bezos, right, like talks about in his letter to share owners, um, you know, that like uh, innovation is the is the the metric 
by which you judge all value creation, right? So it's like mm. the more innovative you are, the more value creation you're doing and vice versa. The more value creation you're doing, the more innovative you are, right? It, it shows, it just truly shows how innovation has become the dominant ideology in a, in a sense, you know, like the market. Like, I think we have to think of innovation now, like when people say the market, it, it's this like, alien force that sits outside of humanity and all we ha all we can do is please it right we just have to find ways of pleasing it of of making sacrifices to it of doing the right rituals uh and then maybe it will bless us with something maybe and if not then we can just keep sacrificing and you know offering blood to the blood god and skulls to the skull throne so that we can build up an even greater potential momentum behind the firm so they can one day innovate something right in the private uh, sector and the markets yeah uh, and like unsurprisingly too like we you know we're joking about malware but would uh -huh. would you be shocked that in this like i think it's like a fucking like 500 or 600 word op-ed it's short but my man covers a lot of ground in that time. But would you be shocked that, that he brings up China? Right? He says, quote, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> he says, quote, patients could be endangered by sabotaged medical devices, but they might also suffer from malfunctions that cause inaccurate test results and thus identified uh, unidentified medical problems. Such concerns also include direct theft of American innovation by bad actors seeking advanced U.S. technology, such as China. Right to repair sounds sympathetic, but it's a wolf in sheep's clothing. All right, there we got it, boys. The right to repair oh. is a Chinese plot. <laughs> I love also that next sentence. It's not being pushed by small repair businesses, but by ideological public interest law firms and activists as an attack on intellectual property. Not to be confused with the private interest law firms and lobbyists that are defending intellectual property, right? <laughs> he moved through so much there. He went from uh, your 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 nana and your papa might be getting harmed by unauthorized community DLCs on your MRI scans, but also this is a Chinese plot. But also, small businesses are good, and they're actually yeah. against this. <laughs> yeah, it's actually big business that's against this. It, big business is against um, IP, um, and we also need to protect IP so that business can big business can continue as usual because China will undermine it. That's also also really interesting premise that like when what do they think China wants with the uh, let's say China's you know actively seeking medical device technology right because there is you know IP theft that goes on uh, what purpose do they think another country might want more advanced medical devices for i mean like <laughs> you know yeah. um, it's 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 um it's also interesting because i think it showcases the limitations of like market logic in terms of moral terms there's no room in a market lo based logic to think about okay maybe if a, if a country doesn't have something it should have a unmitigated access to something that would help the population no it's like if you're trying to get the vaccine for free it's theft if you're trying to get medical devices it's theft right even if it would actually help the people of the country right even if it would in some weird 
calculus be like a, uh, an economic good, right? By freeing people of the burden of having some sort of uh, undiagnosed medical um, illness or disorder. I mean, it really is the Cold War mentality here, but directed at China, right? Like the, the right. problem is, is they want to get their hands on advanced U.S. innovation. Doesn't matter mm -hmm. what it is or why they want to do it or how they might use it. It's just the fact that they want it. And they're bad actors, Ed. They're bad actors. They're all bad actors. Uh, opposed to us, we're good actors. Not <laughs> yeah. actors, but we're just good people. Good people. I feel like that WSJ that I always think SJW when I say that. The, the WSJ is the conservative version of the SJW. But this op-ed does a pretty good job of laying out the like the ideological reasons and, and like the kind of bad faith arguments around why they're against, you know, the right to repair and, and for strong intellectual property rights. But I feel like that 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 little thing that he mentioned there, right, that like the right to repair is not being pushed by small repair businesses, which is fun, which is false. Like that that's mm -hmm. fun, that's actually untrue. It's like there's a lot of grassroots support for the right to repair by repair people, by small repair businesses. Obviously there is because their livelihood depends on the ability to repair stuff without like having to pay Apple or John Deere or whatever company uh, a huge fee for the right to, you know, get the code to unlock the software in your tractor or get the right, you know, screwdriver or get the right, the right, 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 in the legal sense uh, to like open up your MacBook or something like that without voiding the warranty. But I think what he's actually talking about, and this is from a essay, uh, an article in Naked Capitalism that is by, so like Naked Capitalism has for, for a little while been running these kind of like uh, right to repair roundups and, and little stories written by um, this person, Jerry Lynn Schofield, uh, who th this is a, an area of research and has been kind of writing about this for naked capitalism and elsewhere. But in this roundup, which you which you shared with us, said they have a good kind of background to this where I feel like the, you know, Tom Giovanetti, when he's saying like, you know, small business people are actually, you know, not supporting the right to repair. What he's actually talking about here is the fact that um, CompTIA, which is a really big uh, or, organization that, that gives, a, you know, provides um, certificates for repair people, right? So CompTIA is, stands for the Computing Technology Industry Association. And it's this nonprofit trade association that issues all these professional certifications um, for people working in the IT industry. Uh, and it's like, you know, you know, people get their certifications to show that, you know, for like repairing and doing like IT jobs. And this is a pretty standard part of getting a job in the industry. You go through CompTIA, but CompTIA has uh, been coming out against right to repair laws, um, much to the chagrin of, of people 
um, of individuals who actually are like getting certifications from CompTIA and, and, and being like, you know, yo, like, why are you coming out against these right to repair laws? Like, like you're training me to do a job, which I will be unauthorized and illegally like unable to do right. um, because of the laws that you're advocating for. No, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's going to cause innovation. I mean, you, I mean, if you really think about it, you sit down and think about it. If you can't have workers doing a certain type of repair job, then the market will find a way and that will result in innovation, right? That will come from in the form of a startup or a firm or a Koch brother backed institute that will advocate for certain policy reforms that will then lead to a startup or a firm. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. I think, I think, but I do think it's also interesting that a lot of the times is something that we've seen and documented in our episodes is that the most logical thing for capitalists to do is often the thing that they forego doing because the logical thing would re would result in the, the preservation of the system, right? Or the logical thing if you step back, but the logical thing within the system is to just keep going even if it undermines the legitimacy of it. So even if you end up with a system where uh, a lot of the devices don't work. People hate them. People don't want to buy them. People think that it's a scam set up to trap them. You have an incentive to stay within that because that's what's going to make you the most you know, profit or return on the investment, right? Apple, for example, like every, every model of phone or computer that they put out has so much more integration and like so much more work that has to be done to it for you to be able to repair it because that's how hard up they are to prevent anybody from being able to make money off of repairing their products. It's almost to the point where like, yeah, they're using children's hands to make these things. And perhaps that's why the screws and everything are so small. I mean, yeah, so you're right. Like Apple, like a lot of these companies and Apple is just like really bad about it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they, they want to maintain all control over this ecosystem, right? This is again something we talked a lot about with Cory Doctor, right? It's like, like you know, they create these quote-unquote innovation ecosystems, but they're walled gardens. You know, we know all that, right? We know all that 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 language, but really comes down to wanting to maintain this control, wanting to enclose that garden, wanting to enclose the the rights and maintain. Uh, you know, an iron-fisted control over how the their their technology is used, but also like enforcing things like obsolescence, right? Uh, you know, we might ask ourselves, as 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 you know, as I did, right? Like, why would CompTIA be lobbying against the right to repair when these laws are so fundamental uh, to the industry of people that they are training and providing certifications for? And the this article in Naked Capitalism. Uh, gives one possible reason, right? So Schofield writes, quote, the reason CompTIA was simultaneously representing repair technicians and lobbying against right to repair is potentially linked to the 2014 acquisition of the lobbying firm Tech America. At that time, CompTIA was primarily focused on its education and certification business, but had little influence on public policy. They acquired Tech America to amplify, quote, the industry's already powerful voice in Washington, D.C. Apple 
one of the leading voices opposed to right to repair reforms, is reported to be a client of that lobbying work and has lobbied alongside CompTIA in states including California. So Jeremy is right to bring up Apple because Apple's stench is all over this. Boo! You stink! I would be interested also in your take as why is it that... Or, you know, whether you think that repairable or right to repair um, being embraced as a design principle is fundamentally incompatible with like the the larger incentives that these firms have. I mean, because I'm sure that there are some who approach the right to repair argument from the idea that, um, and, and I mean, we've seen it, the idea that this would just be a more logical practice within, you know, consumer electronics would lead to more consumer loyalty, so on and so forth, and that it's a good idea for capitalists to carry on. But then it seems from everything we've been talking about, something that they understand uh, they need to be viscerally opposed to. It's that landlord mindset. They've Mm -hmm. got landlord mindset, right? I mean, I I think unsurprisingly for me and the way that I've explained it in some of my work on this is, is it is just, it comes down to rentierism, right? It's, it's, it comes down to a way of enacting a mechanism with, of what like I've called digital enclosure. It is about, you know, not only, it is about collecting those rents by, you know, charging these like exorbitant authorization fees to repair uh, you know, your Apple product or your John Deere tractor or your medical device or whatever, right? So so there's a, a rental aspect to it as well. But it is also about just like uh, maintaining those strong property rights so that you can then enforce those property rights, which then also allow you to do things like if, if someone voids the warranty by doing like an un- unauthorized modification on their John Deere tractor, um, then you can just brick the tractor. Right. Right. You can just Mm -hmm. revoke the software license that is actually necessary to make the tractor run. And so then all they're left with is this like big, you know, multi hundreds of thousands of dollars, a hunk of metal and rubber sitting in the middle of a field, unable to start because the software has been revoked. Right. You know, I think it's also really interesting because it's like. This is a problem that is, is uh, you know, as this, this piece on naked, you know, capitalism points out, affecting even the United States military, right? You know, and I think it is commonly thought of as purely in the consumer domain or maybe even business to business, but that the state or you would expect the state, you know, with its monopoly on violence to be able to negotiate lower terms for itself. But it doesn't, in fact, right? There's this op-ed um, titled Lack of Right to Repair Limits Ability of U.S. Military to Maintain Its Own Equipment, right, uh, by a captain in the U.S. Armed Forces. You know, she's going into the piece and she uh, talks about how, you know, she's deployed in South Korea, right, knee deep, knee deep in mud. I'm not sure I was able to say that. Incredulously asking one of my maintenance Marines to tell me again why he couldn't fix a broken generator. Right? They needed a generator. Uh, and the response he gave was because of the warranty man. Which is a little, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, a little, um, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to shed a tear for the military. Um inability to conduct operations in the field. But it is surprising, right? You know, this gargantuan that we justify spending hundreds of billions of dollars and that is the central of the American empire, still unable to do it, right? You know, she goes on to say, at the time I hadn't heard of right to repair and didn't know 
that a, con- a civilian concept could affect my job in the military. Which the is such a bro- fucking mm. funny way of phrasing it. Like yeah. that one, this is a New York Times op-ed by a mm-hmm. captain in the Marine Corps. And I mm-hmm. just fucking love that. Like, I didn't know that a civilian concept could affect my job in the military. Right. And it's like we were just talking about that right to repair is thought of as, you know, almost purely a civilian concept or a civilian idea, right? That it only affects pers- consumer electronics, personal um, electronics, you know, things that don't have to deal with like large gargantuan complex business to business business to state you know um operations right and she writes you know this the idea behind right to repair is that you or third party you know you choose should be able to repair something you own instead of being forced to rely on the company that originally sold it and that it strikes up or mo- or rubs up against the idea that products should be deliberately designed you know to prevent end users from fixing them and makes this connection between monopoly power uh, and, you know, the absence of this actually being deployed, right? Thinking back to other times that she's come across maintenance units unable to fix uh, devices in, you know, Okinawa, Japan, where the United States has a large base because the contract demands that they're not allowed to. So it takes months and months and months to do it. Yeah, they had to ship these engines back to the U.S., so yeah, that the contractors could repair them and send them <laughs> back to Japan. Right. You know, recalling also, you know, that Marines, they can, quote, they have the man, uh, the ability to manufacture parts using water jets, lathes, and milling machines, as well as newer 3D uh, printers, that these tools often sit idle in maintenance bays alongside broken down military equipment. Although parts from the manufacturer aren't available to repair the equipment, we aren't allowed to make the parts ourselves due to specifications. I mean... They could they could do it in house if they wanted to, and they honestly should. But they're limited by the contract, right? Mm. They're limited. They, it wouldn't be good for the contract, and it would be and it would be a violation of uh, IP law, right, or of the uh, property law to actually do the more efficient, cheaper, more rapid, and sensible and logical thing, which is just fix it your fucking self. Yeah, I mean, I think that this like put together the Wall Street Journal op-ed uh, by the you know the president for the Institute for Policy Innovation uh, and put it together you know this anti-right to repair op-ed and put it together with this uh, pro-right to repair op-ed in the New York Times by a, a captain in the Marine Corps. Right? Like, I think that tells us a lot a lot about where the debate around intellectual property is in this in this country right where it's like uh you know to find a like strong um pro right to repair op-ed in the, in the new york times and the gray lady herself it's got to be written from the point of view of the military and how mm-hmm. this is like actually really bad for the military and isn't it fucking wild that the civilian concept can prevent us the american empire uh from you know fixing generators in the field and manufacturing new parts on the, you know, on the fly, uh, mm-hmm. you know, isn't, isn't this fucking wild? And it's like, this is where the debate about intellectual property is in the mainstream, mm-hmm. right? It's either you're like, you know, free marketeer fucking like, you know, Coke funded conservative goons who are against it, or you have to be a captain in the military. Um, and like, you know, part of the foundation for new American security uh, in order to like <laughs> pose an argument for yeah. the right to repair and like therefore low key against strong intellectual property rights. And still even then not even have a guarantee of being taken seriously because of how fanatic the, the market sellers are. Right. 
Like who you're going to believe, a captain in the military or the shill capitalist salesman trying to convince you that what they're doing and ripping us off for years and years and years is a good thing. Right. Are you going to believe the press release or your own lying eyes? I mean, come on. It's not even a question. It's not even a question. <laughs> yeah, and the, the, the naked capitalism piece goes on to talk about um, – like a piece that like a like a piece that was published in Popular Mechanics, um, talking about the right to repair as a major issue facing today's military, right? What I hate about that is that like, do we really have to rely on uh the military needs a right to repair in order to maybe get some trickle-down policy reform for everybody else? I mean, at the way they're framing it, I maybe I sure fucking hope not, right? Especially because I think that there has been actually a lot of really good reporting about the the actual impacts of this kind of this form of digital enclosure, um, anti-right to repair laws. You know, I've mentioned a few times like John Deere, right? Like I, th- I feel like John Deere and, and, you know, tractors really illustrate how this mechanism works and raise the seriousness of this issue in a, in a, in a great way. Um, especially because like, you know, these heavy machinery manufacturers are the ones that really kind of led the charge, you know, alongside Apple. Um, but really, it was, it was also companies like John Deere, but also like General Motors leading the charge against the right to repair, because these are the things that you would normally get repaired, right? Like heavy machinery, your, your vehicles, your tractors, you, you know, stuff like that, that get used all the time and need regular repairs. And so it makes sense that these manufacturers would be against anybody being allowed to do those repairs. You know, I found this uh, quote from General Motors in hearings with the U.S. Copyright Office. Uh, the uh, General Motors, you know, lead attorney argued, quote, it is our position the software in the vehicle is licensed by the owner of the vehicle. So what that means then is like by only licensing the software, these manufacturers uh, are able to prevent any kind of like independent garages or hobbyist gearheads from repairing or modifying any of the electronic components of the car. And and, and I want to give a shout out as well to, a, I think, your editor, Ed, um, Jason Kobler, uh-huh. who a few years ago wrote a number of great stories for Motherboard about the you know interviewing farmers interviewing these people doing a lot of on the ground reporting about the actual impacts of the the right to repair um for for you know these farmers and all the 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 kind of like legal pushes that that companies like John Deere were doing against it you know like 5 years ago uh, Jason writes in um in a in a piece on this quote the nightmare scenario and a fear i heard expressed over and over again in talking with farmers is that John Deere could remotely shut down a tractor and there wouldn't be anything a farmer could do about it I mean, this, this is right. You know, this is the way, you know, it's not just your phone that might get bricked. It's not just your Sonos speaker or your smart coffee maker that might stop having updates sent to it because a company decides it just doesn't want to support that product anymore. It could also be, it could be anything, (laughs) literally Mm -hmm. anything. Mm -hmm. It could be a tractor. It could be an F-35. It could, Mm -hmm. you know, any of this shit is now subjected to these uh, uh, mechanisms of digital enclosure. 
Right, exactly. If it's something that someone can rent to you, then they will rent it to you, right? And they will take advantage of whatever instrument is in their arsenal uh, to, ex- to you know, make it as difficult for you as possible to get out from under the terms of rent. I think also a key thing in the criticism of rentierism is there's, I think there's at times efforts to try to argue that rentiers are an aberration of capitalism as opposed to like the logical consequence, you know, that I think we have, it's more or less proven about the, the falling rate of returns for capital and for investments and on profits, right? And that as, you know, speculators, as capitalists lose more and more or search more and more for frontiers and investments that will yield outsized returns, you know, one thing they're always going to land back on is just hoarding what already exists right now and figuring out new ways to make people pay for it, right? And that is a core logic of capitalism the longer it runs because of how profit falls, 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 right? And it's up to speculative activity, essentially, right? Or somehow stupendous new forms of economic activity that emerge every now and then uh, Mm -hmm. to generate the sort of returns that historically, you know, were more common or new returns that are historically unprecedented, right? It is, and also going off that, right, rentiers, I think in like early, or not early, but, you know, in more recent analyses of capitalism, like Keynes analyses, are understood to be parasites that need to be put down, right? You know, that rentier capitalism, if you are a capitalist, if you are a capitalist, rentiers are like blood-sucking vampires and parasites that undermine the stability of the system. And if you are not a capitalist, then they are fucking blood-sucking parasites to undermine the stability of the system. You know, there's no rationale or defense of them. Yeah, I mean, we can see this sentiment shared uh, from, you know, classic political economists like David Ricardo and Adam Smith up to Marx, up through Keynes, right? They all came together despite their vast uh, differences of opinion. They all came together on the same sentiment, the same conclusion that rentiers are parasites and they have to be put down. I mean, Keynes literally talked about uh, that the euthanasia of the rentier was a, was a necessary step for, uh, you know, an advanced economy. Um, he called them functionalist investors. If we, can get con- if we can get broad consensus on that issue, there's something right. <laughs> there's something yeah, right. There's something <laughs> true. There's something true there. And to that point about rentiers, like I've been finishing up a, a paper that I'm writing on rentier capitalism and the gig economy. I, I tweeted this out a few days ago, but I want to say it here as well. I came up with what I think is a good rule of thumb on this, right? It's like, you know, when you hear a tech company describe itself in terms of doing X as a service, uh, that should trigger alarm bells in your head right. immediately. Because chances are you are face-to-face with a rentier, you know, mm-hmm. perhaps uh, an already well-established one um, or, or merely a wannabe rentier. Um, mm-hmm. But either way, they 
what they seek to do is enclose access to and capture value from some sector of assets and activities by transforming these traditional goods into rentable services. Mm-hmm. It's you know it reminds me of also David A. Banks' um, story and also mm-hmm. subsequent essay on the rise of the subscriber model, right? That. It's no coincidence in this period that the firms that have emerged from a glut of capital in the shadow of a financial crisis um, are also the firms that are transforming daily life into a series of packaged experiences and services that were once public or that were once communicable or that were once social in one way or another, not on the market. They're transforming everything into a market-based approach and also erecting large barriers to uh, behind those things so that you have to pay for them no matter what or that they encourage other actors to carve them up and pay for them. And I think that also ties into this right to repair logic in that if you can successfully parse up social life into a series of services and experiences, and then you can also create network devices that mediate those experiences, then you can create through denial of right to repair um, a never, uh, a theoretically never-ending amount of rents, right? Because basically now daily life has been commodified, or at least core parts of it have been commodified. Transportation in a in an urban uh, city, right? Or an urban core. Medical services, right? Um, or you can also do it where you create the need for new things that other people might not otherwise want, right? Delivery of goods and services. On-demand labor for tasks. I mean, like this is the whole premise of the gig economy, right? Turning stuff that people would have done their own themselves and to subsidize slave a labor or servant work. And then if you attach that to a technology or network device, then you have multiple streams of revenue coming in. You have rent that people need to access these services that they've been trained to need and that they're also going to have to need and depend on because we've atrophied you know, the state and the infrastructure behind it so that they have no other alternative but the market. Yeah, and I, I think we've touched on a lot of the points in this in this op-ed, but I do want to give a shout out as well that the, the New York Times did very recently, um, mm-hmm. like like a couple of weeks ago, run a good uh, opinion essay on this very topic that that wasn't wasn't just couched from the framework of hey this is bad for American Empire, <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh, Damon Barris. Uh, who co-founded the publication One Zero at Medium, rest in peace uh, mm-hmm. to One Zero and all the excellent work that they were doing. Another another victim of tech overlords pivoting to something to, we'll find, to find profit. We will, we will. But uh, they did run a great essay by Damon um, called "Your Smartphone Should Be Built to Last." And uh, it, it, you know, really coming down to not only these issues of of right to repair. I mean, that is definitely a big part of what the the essay is about. Um, but also just looking at the like just the environmental impacts of of like the planned obsolescence and the constantly cranking out of like you know these rare earth minerals and all you know the the whole life cycle. Um, of creating something like an iPad or a smartphone is just awful. Yeah, I really like this this bit, uh, the ending bit, especially of uh, Damon's essay here, op-ed for the New York Times, writing that you know there's the issue in the in a nutshell. Sustainability matters, but marketable design appears to matter more to these companies. Consumers are urged to upgrade their devices annually. Well north of one billion smartphones are shipped in 2020, and it was a sluggish year. 
because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Manufacturers must do better. Their devices must be repairable by all and kept compatible with software updates for as long as possible, not artificially obsoleted. Consumers should support right-to-repair legislation. Buy what you please, be it a fancy fridge or a smartphone. Uh, no one is changing the world by holding on to an iPhone 7 for an extra year. But know to ask three simple questions when you're shopping. How long will it last? How will I get it fixed when it breaks? And how will I recycle this when I need a new device? Follow through and get the thing fixed or take it to a trustworthy recycler when it's time. Apple store employees can help with this step, for instance. In, a, in this world, damage is a certainty, but we cannot leave things broken. A promise of our creation is a problem that can be fixed, right? Or a problem of our creation is a problem that can be fixed, right? I think, And I think that also gets to the point where a lot of these problems that have emerged as a consequence of the way that we organize daily life, the way that we've chosen to distribute resources, the, the, the underlying political economy, underwriting decisions that have to do with technology, right, are painted to be things outside of our control. Getting to the points that we've talked about where technology takes on this magical essence, this larger-than-life form, when in reality, these are all human systems, and these are all human systems that respond to humans. And if we are interested in solving them, right, then we have to accept that, right? If we want to solve the issue of waste, and if we want to solve the issue of monopoly power preventing people from just using devices or preventing them from penetrating every aspect of their life, we also have to give them the ability to repair them or modify them, right? Because that shifts power from the corporations and from whatever coalitions of actors that have conspired to preserve that status quo to individuals and groups and public interest groups, right? that might have other uses for a device that can be modified or for a device that can last more than one year or a device that does not need to be, you know, thrown away in a volcano to prevent any sort of uh, a footprint from carbon footprint from emerging or waste footprint or poison footprint from emerging, right? Absolutely. I mean, the, the more topics we cover, it, like just just the landscape of problems, but also like necessary avenues for resistance and pushing back just grows it just grows so mm -hmm. much man mm -hmm. like like right to repair it that's another thing right another 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 assault against people by these rentiers and by these fucking corporations that we have to push back against right and it's not only it's at this point it's like with something like right to repair it's not about like gaining new ground it's just about maintaining ground yeah and i think but i do think that there is i think part of the thing is because these are consumer products there's a little bit more room in that, you know, it's, I don't know, I think like, you know, boycotts can't change anything about how monopolies operate, right? But, you know, right to repair, I think, sustains its own momentum because it has to deal with people having to buy something all the fucking time or not being able to control how they use it, even though it's such an integral part of their life. And this can be connected to larger, more underground ideas that are lurking in the shadows about what an individual should be allowed to control inside of our economy, right? Should our economy be operated in a way where a series of privately unaccountable tyrannies and called corporations decide all major choices about the life cycle of a device, about the functionality of it, about the network, t uh, the networking capacities of it, about whether or not you can modify it, about the narrow situations which you can use it? Probably not, right? But right to repair 
is not, of course, going to like topple that, but it does introduce, I think, and some people, the idea that, you know, maybe, maybe these devices and other devices and other products offered by corporations and by economic processes should be more democrat, more under democratic control, whether that means direct or indirect. Like, you know, direct could be like workers and so forth, and indirect could be consumers having the chance to modify them at their tail end. It would be really awesome if the workers had a, like a Lucas plan type moment where they realized that all these devices and computers and tablets and everything like that, that they could feasibly make them the last and just fuck over the people, the the brands that they're making these devices for. But it almost seems like that the, the people they employ specifically in, you know, global South countries and don't have access to know that they can do something like that. I, I think bringing up the Lucas plan is a really great point. I, I love that connection there because like this is uh, this is something like the right to repair and not only the right to repair but like making these things repairable from the start right like like not having to reverse engineer uh some kind of right to repair yeah like making this you know repairable from the start right because like in Damon Barris's uh essay right he he talks about how like you know Apple put out their annual environmental report um, where they assert, you know, this commitment to device longevity and sustainability. But the way it talks about it is like it has a case that, you know, it speaks about the Apple pencil stylus. Uh, and, you know, Damon says, quote, uh, as though it contains secrets lost in some fragment of the Rosetta Stone, uh, because like the company is, quote, um, and this is quoting from Apple's environmental report, Quote, designing, developing, and testing additional disassembly tools, including new methods for recovering materials from Apple uh, Pencil. And, And so, I mean, the point that Damon is getting at here is though it's like, you know, Apple's talking about how they have to like reverse engineer uh, these disassembly tools as if like the Apple Pencil is some piece of like ancient advanced technology that they're having to study uh, and reverse engineer. (laughs) And it's like, no, you created it. You made it. And you could have integrated these, uh, you know, disassembly tools and recovery processes and recycling into the design of it from the very first stage. But you chose not to. And there's a reason they chose not to. It's because it didn't make uh, sense profit-wise. Right? Yeah. Why would this, you do it? It gets at the point that Jeremy was making about the uh, uh, Lucas plan, right? It's like, yeah, like socially beneficial forms of production would have things like repairability uh, built into the design of it, right? And this isn't some like technical feat, some innovation, some, you know, no, like all this is possible. It's just a choice, right? It comes down to a mm-hmm. choice. Mm-hmm. I've repaired my iPhones before in the past and every time I've cracked a screen, I've repaired it myself and it gets progressively harder and harder with every iteration of the iPhone. It's like, you know, eventually they're just going to get to the point where there's going to be a sensor in it. And if you open it up, it just, it it breaks it immediately. Yeah. I mean, we pretty much already are at that point where it's like, if you open it up, it like voids the warranty and will like, you know, perhaps like possibly stop all software updates and stuff like that. Right. So it's like, yeah, I mean, that that is the point that we're at. We, 
we definitely went long on the right to repair. I had a reading series lined up for us, but, you know, maybe we'll set it aside for another time. I won't leave everyone hanging out. We were going to, we were going to talk about, and maybe it's not even worth talking about because why, why, why just keep getting mad at this? Yeah, bullshit? fuck Elon Musk. We, we, this is a message to our viewers. We uh, do not watch the episode because we didn't watch the episode. You don't have to do that to yourself. Take care of yourself. Love yourself. And uh, just don't fucking watch it. There's no reason to, right? Yeah, you'll you gain nothing from it. You know what you will do? You'll gain a few points uh, on your blood pressure, right? That's it. Who's it going to help? Yeah, yeah. You don't need to watch Musk on SNL. And the, the essay we were going to do a little reading series on, and yeah, maybe I'll just throw it in the trash bin where it, where it belongs. But it's a Bloomberg opinion um, ran a piece called Elon Musk's golden age of tech innovation is coming and God help us if that's true. <laughs> and I mean, this is just like, I mean, just the long and short of it is right. That is like, this is a, this is a column written by Bloomberg opinions, technology columnist, and it's just truly uh, someone debasing themselves in print uh, fanboying about Elon Musk uh, and about how like, you know, the tech industry is going to save us. But like, you know, as Musk said, quote, too many smart people go into finance and law and they're not, you know, in, in these profession, uh, you know, the, these people aren't uh, uh, remaking the economy. They're just tinkering around at the edges of the economy. It's just another one of these fucking bullshit things designed to make me and Ed and Jeremy mad. <laughs> yeah, which we are, you know, we're not getting as mad as Chomsky reading the New York Times where he grinds his teeth, but we're getting there. I'm I did go to you the know. dentist uh, uh, last month and they did say that I was grinding my teeth. So I think I might actually be there. I take that back. <laughs> yeah, oh, I might yeah. actually have to get a night guard because I've been grinding my teeth. <laughs> I, after I read that story by Jomsky, instead of grinding my teeth, I would do this thing where I open my mouth and like, shove my tongue deep into like underneath a tooth, you know, or like press it against one of the, you know, the gum in my mouth. Right. Because instead of grinding, I could just be, I can angrily push it and it's not going to hurt me or my tongue, but it will express the rage I feel deep inside. Right. <laughs> you know, it's just like, ah, fucking God damn it. I hate these. <laughs> I hate this. Uh, <laughs> we at team K do apologize for the many dinner parties, uh, social engagements that uh, we are going to ruin for your friends. If you discuss the contents of the show. Oh, yeah, that's true. I mean, I, yeah, I've talked to some people who've done that already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think by way of just ending, I will give a shout out, a, th a thought that crossed my mind. And I think it's something, you know, if people are interested in reading further as well. And a larger point, uh, you know, something like the right to repair needs to be understood as as a, a pretty rational uh, strategy by capital to try to address these contradictions and crises that constantly plague capitalism, you know, mm -hmm. two that come to mind is on one hand, the, the crisis of overaccumulation and overproduction, right? Like, you know, capitalism only knows how to do things uh, in overdrive, right? So that, you know, they're just constantly cranking out new stuff, right? New, new goods, uh, you know, everything is working at max capacity and it creates this this crisis of overproduction, right? They've got all these goods and they've got nowhere to dump them. Um, and that that links up to this crisis of the, you know, the tendency of the rate of profit to decline. 
And so what we see something like the right to repair really boils down to as a legal tactic to try to address this crisis of overaccumulation and declining profit by making people have to consume, right? Mm-hmm. By making by by keeping that circuit of consumption of, you know, CMC, right? You got you got uh, commodity uh, and then you get money for it. That's your labor. You get money for it and you use that money to buy another commodity, an iPhone or an iPad or whatever. And then you got to keep doing it all over again, right? It's this infinite circuit. Uh, and, 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 and that, that's how, you know, capital needs to be, it's money in motion, right? That's what mm-hmm. capital is. It, that's, that's a Marxist definition of capital, money in motion. Um, and something like the right to repair is designed to keep that cycle of consumption constantly flowing um, and do so in a way that's, that's a, a legal technology, right? It's a technology designed to create these intellectual property rights in something that can then uh, allow them, yeah, to do like forced obsolescence, allow them to break uh, your iPad or whatever. So then you got to go out and buy another one. And you got to buy another one. It just keeps you tethered to this uh, this machinery of overproduction. It never ends. And it never will end. Like the episode we had last week when we were talking to Dan Green and talking about like accessibility to technology, they've set it up in such a way now that if you don't have an iPhone or an Android phone, that you can't be a functioning member of society thus setting up a whole other discussion and layer of other bullshit that we have to like trog through. You know, if, if you're, if you save up the script and save and you buy this phone and it fucking breaks and you, it's $200 to go to a kiosk in the mall and get it fixed, but you have to pay for the whole new phone at, at the Apple store. What are you going to do? You're going to go to the cheaper option. If that option's not there and you just saved all this money for this phone that essentially you can't use anymore, you're back to square one. And it's just, it's a fucking shitty system. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that, I mean, that's a great point there, Jeremy, that they, yeah, I mean, like it's, it's by design that these things, that the floor of necessary skills and technology and so on and so forth constantly rises. And you have to figure out ways of rising to meet that floor um, before it outpaces you. I'll, I'll just leave with, you know, anybody interested in, understanding more about these contradictions and crises of capitalism. Um, there's a great book written by uh, David Harvey, you know, one, one of the, one of the, one of the great Marxist geographers, but also like kind of a, uh, popularizers and and translators of Marx, right? Translators in the sense of like actually making it understandable and relatable. Um, he has a great book that came out um, a, a, long, a while ago now in 2014, but it's called 17 Contradictions and the End of Capitalism. And in that book, he just goes through uh, point by point in a really, in a, in a really kind of like clear and accessible way, these various contradictions that are inherent parts of capitalism, which capitalism is always trying to figure out ways to escape its inevitable fate of the contradictions catching up. You know, we've talked a lot about contradictions. Do you think it's too late for the capitalist? Do you think that they can ever figure out what they're fucking up and, uh, you know, and fix it on this front at least? You know, have you seen, I don't know if I have, have you seen from the far right, not from the far right, from the far capitalist, from the capitalist zealots, any sort of uh, whimpering about how, you know, right to repair would be a good idea? Or has it just been like, you know, unified opposition? 
it does, it seems to me to just be like unified opposition. Like all the uh, all the pro right to repair people are yeah led by uh, like the you know the U.S. Public Interest Research Group or like the you know these these kind of like um, advocacy and activist firms that represent the rights and the interest of the public. That that's really like the you know I I, I can't I, I can't recall seeing any anybody in the capitalist core um, actually advocating for a right to repair. It was like, why would they, right? It benefits them. So many small business owners that do repair, like the kiosk that I'd mentioned before, like there's so many people that are small business owners and they're essentially cutting small business owners out. Like Apple makes you sign a contract if you're a authorized repairer and that contract says you can only replace the battery or the screen. You can't do anything else. Mm-hmm. And if you do, you lose your license. And the other thing is, it's like they can still come and uh, they can show up and inspect your workspace to make sure there's no counterfeit parts. And the other thing that they don't tell you that's all on the small print too is that even if you opt out of it or if you quit doing it, they still have the right to come back around for up to five years and inspect your work area to make sure you're not using any counterfeit or un- unsanctioned Apple parts. That's just how far this shit goes. Right. Yeah. These repair businesses. Yeah. This is part of their like uh, maintaining their authorization and their certificates from Apple uh, in order to do these repairs. Yeah. So no, I mean, to your point, uh, you know, granted, like this is not something that I have. I like follow it, but I don't follow the debate super closely. But everything I've seen has it, like the people for and against the right to repair. Uh, the lines are pretty bright in terms of like where they sit in the economy. Yeah. No, I think you're right on that. Well, you know what that means. We're just going to expropriate them. You know, we can't can't leave right. it up to them. <laughs> <laughs> That's always the lesson at the end of every TM camp. If you want to was, stop this, <laughs> expropriate. <laughs> I was literally going to say the same thing. It's like we could just fucking like sound clip that and throw that in as, as the ending of every episode. All right. Well, that's the episode. And you know what that means. Got to expropriate the capitalist. <laughs> Thank you for listening. <laughs> That's why we co-host this. That's why we all are on this podcast, because we know we finish each other's ideological rants. That's what it is. You know? That's right. That's right. We, are, we are the one true communist hive mind sharing yeah. one brain amongst <laughs> us. <laughs> so with that, I do want to do, yes, expropriate the capitalist. Also, Always. thank you for listening. Uh, you know, thanks for listening. And uh, you can find us for more premium content every single week at patreon.com slash this machine kills, where we hit you with another episode every single week this week. We're, uh, in the Patreon feed, we're going to be doing Chapter 2 of Langdon Winner's Autonomous Technology. Really great, uh, long, meaty chapter um, looking at the question of uh, how, how, what you know, what he calls the engines of change, right? Like, how do technologies actually change? How does tech transformation happen? What are these ideas uh, that kind of, like, latch on to the popular understanding of it around, like, you know, determinism, technological evolution, drift, right? It's a great chapter. So we're going to be getting into that. So I hope you'll find, I hope you'll join us there for this ongoing series, as well as all of our premium content there. Um, And so until then, later. Later. This foundation we can break up, AC. 
Just like when DMC were tougher than leather Mike and I said it's all love, it's gonna get better We were built to last, what we do stays here forever uh, Solid ground is so hard to come by One by one eye, gotta see the other eye Every failure is another try till we get it Stay with it, live with it, give it what you need Wild ghetto seeds grown up to take the lead I'm so glad that I got a purpose And I can see past the surface I'm ready for service, yeah Hard to believe in coincidence I just deal with the confidence Decisions and the consequence I made a vow and I took an oath About growth, got integrity on what I wrote And that's a quote, it ain't where you're from It's where you at, you heard that I'm from the place where they serve at Where the word at, good brother, you deserve that I won't waste my life force Chasing some horses off course Ride steady and stay ready, built to last. It's machine kill.